Let's pray, and, uh, and we'll get into God's Word this morning. Lord, we just thank you, uh, God, that the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the Word of our Lord stands forever, and it's sure. And Father, I thank you that your Word that you've given us is firm foundation for our feet. It uh, provides us with clear thinking. God, we thank you for the truths and the doctrines and the theology that the Word of God teaches us and the understanding that it gives us with regards to you, Lord, and ourselves and the world around us. And God, I just pray that as we uh, spend some time in your Word this morning, that the written Word would lead us to you, Jesus, the living Word. And we'd hear what you have to say to your church, Lord, and your people. And so, God, we just ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on, good. Well, we're going to get to Titus, but we're going to get there in a few minutes, okay? I was, uh, isn't it wild what's going on in our world, you guys? And uh, I was just, you know, praying, going into this weekend and wanting to uh, give some sort of prophecy update or discuss what's happening in the Middle East with the people of Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians and the whole deal. And uh, so, you know, just even yesterday, I'm like, man, I'm just kind of undecided in where, Lord, you're leading. And so I went, I went to bed. I went to bed just praying, God, just speak to me in the night, you know, give me something. And uh, the Lord gave me actually uh, Isaiah 46, verse 3, in the night. And so I want to take you there yeah, in, in our Bibles. And in a minute, we're going to read the whole, the whole chapter. But I want you to see this first. And so... It says this in Isaiah 46, verse 3, and I'm going to read 4, too. I don't know if I have 4. It's going to come up on the screen. But it says this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and two gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry and will save. I love that, man. And the Lord gave me that in the night last night and just reminded me that Israel belongs to him and that he is uh, unfolding a sovereign plan in his purposes throughout history and throughout the ages through the people of Israel and uh, through the children of Israel. And to me, this verse, what struck me about this, there's a number of things, but one of them is this, is that the Lord says, listen to me, O house of what? No. O house of Jacob. O house of Jacob. And <laughs> that's okay, Dorda. We'll, we'll give you a proper translation when the service is over today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> o house of Jacob. Now in the scripture, it's always a, a very interesting thing. When I'm reading prophecies, of the Old Testament, one of the things I pay attention to is whether the Lord is addressing Israel as Jacob or addressing them as Israel. And it's significant because it refers back to a very specific thing that happened in Scripture to a man named Jacob. You remember when he wrestled with the Lord, Jacob was a liar. He was a deceiver. And when he wrestled with the Lord, the Lord touched him and transformed his nature and said, now I'll give you a new name. You'll no longer be known as Jacob. You'll be known as Israel. And so when the scripture makes reference back to that, it's, it's speaking of, I think, you know, uh, regenerate 
people and an unregenerate people, a, a people that have not yet, in Jacob, not yet been transformed by the Lord, I would say by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to me, that this, this was interesting that the Lord led me to this. And, um, and they're called here the house of Jacob. He's speaking of the collective whole of the nation, that they are unregenerate in terms of what the Lord is saying to them. And so that term Jacob is a reference to the unregenerate state of Israel. Now, I want to read to you the rest of the passage. Let's back up here and let's read all of Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1, and get a picture of what the Lord is saying to the children of Israel in this passage. It says this, verse 1, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. The things that you carry are born. I want you to notice this. The things that you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, verse 5? And make my equal and compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales. Hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. And they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it and they set it in its, they set it in its place. And it stands there. I want you to just make note of this, okay? They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my own counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are fat from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness and it is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. And I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So we talk about this in Bible prophecy. You know, when the Lord, um, when we think of prophecy, the bullseye, the center of the bullseye is Jerusalem, you guys. It's the Temple Mount. I tell you this, you know, often. And so when we see God working in the nation of Israel, it's like something's happening on the outside of the bullseye. The center of the bullseye, as you move towards Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount, you're zoning in, you're, you're, you're getting on target, so to speak, with regards to, is, uh, to Bible prophecy. And so when it comes to prophecy, Israel is always at the center. Not America, okay? Not Canada. Israel. Israel. And I love this, that the Lord says, I have carried you and I will carry you even to your old age. 
And this passage says here that they have lifted up idols, but God promises that he will carry them. You know, as I've been uh, just watching, I haven't even been fascinated. I've been fascinated. I'm like, Lord, what are you doing in the world right now? What are you doing in Israel? What is going on with this war? The nation's raging, you know, all the craziness that we're seeing. And uh, as I've been watching different things, something caught my eye, you know, in one of the videos. Um, it was from the rave that happened in the desert. So I got a picture. I, I pulled this. You know what? You know, the rave, 3,000 people in the wilderness um, having their trance dance. And something caught my eye. And we know this. Like, come on. This was a music festival with young people. Okay. This was sexual debauchery and immorality happening in the wilderness during a time when the nation was celebrating a holiday where they actually have completed the reading of the Torah. And so, can you show that picture up there? It's, I, 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 didn't, I didn't zoom in, but I saw this in the video as I was watching. And I saw that there was an idol, a, a statue, lifted up on a raised platform in the midst of everything that was going on. And, um, and to me, it's interesting that the, the Lord showed me this in Isaiah 46 here. That Isaiah speaks of this. You've made idols and you've lifted them up on platforms and they can't save you. They can't save you. And so church, I want to just remind you this morning about the sovereign plan of God and how God is working in history for his story. God, in the word of God, it's recounted for us from the book of Genesis that God chose one man who was righteous in the midst of all of the world. And he made a covenant of grace with that one man, that man who was righteous by faith, the man Abraham. And God promised to Abraham, he said this, I will give to you this land, the land of Canaan. I will give it to you and to your descendants, and it will belong to you forever. And it was a covenant of grace. I want to point that out to you, that it was a covenant that God made by his sovereign will, picking out one man and choosing him. And when God made this promise to Abraham, the scripture tells us something happened to him. The great darkness came over him. And the Lord spoke to him. And the Lord told him, before your descendants inherit this land, they're going to go into 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt. The Lord told Abraham that before it ever happened. And so this covenant of grace was formed to Abraham and to his descendants. And the amazing story that's recounted for us in the book of Genesis that we're going to just start to make our way through on Wednesday nights. God and his sovereignty draw, drew a man by the name of Joseph, Abraham's grandson, down to Egypt. God sent him ahead. Joseph came to understand this. He was sent ahead to both uh, make provision for the world and to save the descendants of Israel. In Egypt, God blessed the children of Israel when, when Isaac and his boys came down, or sorry, Israel and his boys came down to uh, the land of Egypt. There God blessed them and he multiplied them. They grew to be millions in the land of Egypt. And what did Pharaoh do to them, church? Do you remember? He enslaved them. He enslaved them. And Pharaoh, in his uh, 
desire to crush the Israelites made a plan and he instructed the midwives to murder every Israelite Jewish baby boy as he came out of the womb. The word of God tells us that those midwives honored the Lord and they allowed those boys to live and God blessed them and gave them families of their own. And so Pharaoh gave another instruction. He said, do this. Take the young Jewish infants and throw them into the river Nile. And, and as he made this plan, God began to work. We know this, that uh, God raised up in the midst of that one man out of the tribe of Levi, out of the family of Levi, Moses. And God preserved his life in a basket. And he was uh, discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh and brought into the house of Pharaoh and raised in the house of Pharaoh. God had made a, a way for a redeemer in the midst of that whole plan of Pharaoh unfolding. And God used Moses and Moses led them out. And he led them into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, God provided for the children of Israel manna from heaven and water streams in the desert. And God called them as a nation unto himself to lead them to the promised land. And there he led Moses up onto Mount Sinai and he gave Moses the moral law. And what did Israel do? You know this. What were they doing down in the valley while Moses was up there receiving the law from God? They had built a golden calf under the leadership of Aaron. And they participated in debaucherous worship in front of that calf. It wasn't just worship. It was sexual immorality and debauchery. And when Moses came down, God raised up a group of righteous people in the midst of that, and 3,000 were killed on that day. It's very interesting that there were 3,000 attending that desert rave, the land of Israel. In the midst of that, God did this. He selected one tribe, the tribe of Levi, to serve as priests and those who would operate the tabernacle. And so, uh, again, think of that. Think of that picture. Uh, amazing to me that this idol's lifted up in the wilderness and there's 3,000 out there worshiping. But historically, under the leadership of Joshua, God brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. They were brought there by miracles and the Lord used them as a tool of judgment against the Canaanites and the people who were dwelling in the land. God used them as his instrument of righteousness and justice against a wicked pagan people that inhabited the land. And they didn't do all that the Lord promised or called them to do. They didn't, they didn't inherit all the land God had promised them because they didn't take it. But there God blessed them. He gave them King David uh, to lead them. He gave them Solomon who eventually built a temple as the central gathering place for the children of Israel to worship Yahweh. But the children of Israel became as the residents of the land of Canaan. Uh, they became like the nations around them and they worshiped the gods that were around them. So God disciplined them. He sent the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and they took many of the people of Israel into captivity. And while they were in captivity for 70 years, a man of influence, an antichrist, 
rose up in prominence and he plotted the death of all the Jews. His name was Haman. And he manipulated the government. He manipulated the state. And he put a date on the calendar for the annihilation of all of Abraham's descendants. But God was at work on behalf of them, the children of Israel. And he'd already placed Queen Esther in the house of the king, a Jewish maiden named Hadassah, who became the queen of the people. And God used her as they fasted and prayed and sought the Lord to save her people. And out of that salvation, what happened? Nehemiah returned to the land of Jerusalem. Ezra returned to the land of Jerusalem and the remnant rebuilt Jerusalem and the walls of the city and they rebuilt the temple. The second temple was built. And then God led them into another 400 year period. For 400 years, there was silence. No words from God, no prophecies, the heavens as brass. And once again, they became subject to their enemies. And yet even during that time, the Lord blessed them and they multiplied from being a small remnant returning to Jerusalem to being a nation once again of millions. And under the heavy hand of the Romans in the fullness of time, the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of a virgin and God incarnate was born. And he was named Jesus as the angel had instructed his mother and his stepfather. And they were told that he would save his people from his sins. He was the king of the Jews. And so when he was born, wise men from the east who knew these things came to worship him and they went to King Herod. And when Herod heard these things and he heard that there was another king, he sent soldiers to the little town of Bethlehem to do what? To murder the little baby boys. Of course, this week, plans of Hamas were found on dead soldiers. They were discovered what their, some of their intentions were, that they were to target children and specifically babies on their mission. The father did this in history past. He sent his son to save his people from their sins. And Satan, inspired by uh, Satan inspired Herod, Herod in the spirit of the Antichrist to murder the baby boys of Nazareth. Jesus came. And as his ministry began, he announced the kingdom of heaven, calling people to repent of sin. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no access to the Father except through him. Jesus claimed to be the exclusive, singular point of access to the Father. Amen, church? We believe that. And he, he demonstrated that authority by the things that he did. By miracles. By demonstrating his power over nature, over the animal kingdom, over weather, over sickness, over disease, and even over death itself. He raised the dead. What happened? Israel rejected him. They rejected their Christ, the Messiah. Jesus was rejected by Israel, and he said that the temple would be destroyed as a result, that not one stone would be left upon another, and that Jerusalem would be besieged. And Jesus wept over the city, saying, even now if you understood the time that you live in, 
The time of my appearing, I would gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But he was rejected. And in the sovereign plan of God, Jesus went to the cross and he made atonement for the sins of mankind. He offered up his body. A physical body. This is very important to the atonement and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was crucified for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven. You know, the Gnostic doctrine that says a physical matter is of no significance and only the spirit matters is a lie. Jesus bore sin in his body so that we could be forgiven. And he was physically raised from the dead so that we could have eternal life. And the Lord has redeemed us spiritually and he has promised that we will participate in his resurrection. Our redemption is both spiritual and it is physical. God is concerned about our spirit and he's concerned about our bodies. And Jesus was raised from the dead and the word of God tells us many saw him raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a documented historical summary along with the gospel accounts that demonstrate that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was physical and that his body, though different, was still physical. Not just some spiritual resurrection, not just some Christ consciousness. Jesus spent time with his disciples. He ate with them. They touched him. And then he physically ascended to heaven before their eyes. And angels appeared and told the disciples, as you've seen him go, so he will return. We believe in a physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that he had to return to the Father so that the Spirit could be poured out at Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was poured out, the church was born, a light for the nations, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to Jews and to Gentiles, because God's plan of salvation was never solely for the nation of Israel, but for all creation, that all creation would be saved by faith in his Son. And so for the Jewish people, what do we see in Scripture? What was the result of their rejection of Jesus while well, Jerusalem was sieged? Historic history tells us that. The temple was destroyed. And Israel was dispersed among the nations, fleeing the land promised to Abraham, the promised land. But the scripture and the prophets foresaw these things and they prophesied that the time would come when Israel would be regathered. Some of the great treasures that I have in my library of books is commentaries that predate 1948. Because they have preachers' commentaries who said, yeah, this stuff is going to happen, but it can't happen until Israel is regathered. I don't know how it's going to happen, how it's going to work out. But these men preached these things. They preached that which the prophets declared in generations before. And so the prophets foresaw all these things and they prophesied that a time would come when Israel would be regathered. And as that initiative began to grow a little more than a hundred years ago, Satan once again demonically inspired a man to destroy all Jewish people. And he dragged the world into a global conflict that led to the murder and the extermination of six million Jews. It was an attack on the sovereign plan of God. 
And out of that tragedy, God worked because he rules over all history and over all nations. And he worked to bring the Jewish people back to the promised land, the land promised in that covenant of grace to Abraham. And in 1948, the nation of Israel was born, reborn, not spiritually. They were not born again because they had not acknowledged the Lord's Christ. They had not acknowledged Jesus. And for 75 years, they have not acknowledged Jesus as a nation. They've been in the land. And though the gospel's making headway in their midst, and there are Jews for Jesus, and there are people coming to the Lord in the midst of that nation, they are mainly an unregenerate people whom God is blessing because of his covenant with Abraham. This is seen in Isaiah 46.3. Look with me again at Isaiah 46.3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and Safe. The promise of God is that he has carried Israel from the very womb, even when they lift up their worship to idols. And right now, church, we need to pray for the nation of Israel and we need to pray for what's going on in our world. The Lord remembers Israel. And the Lord in this passage in verse 8 calls Israel to remember that which he has done for him. To me, it's been striking that I've not heard a reference from Israeli officials to the Lord. Not once. Not once. And what we are witnessing, this is important, is the whole reordering of nations, church. The whole reordering of the world. This conflict is different than other conflicts. I understand why Israel is going to be merciless in their response to the enemy. And I also understand why the world is going to cry out against Israel as the word of God prophesies. I think actually that there are three things that are a very strong possibility from this conflict. Number one is this, that all the nations are going to turn against Israel. All of them. The word of God prophesies that that will happen. I think another possibility is this, is because the initiative, as I mentioned last week, by Hamas was motivated by the defense of the Temple Mount and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, again, the Temple Mount is the center of the bullseye, isn't it? And I don't know if something's going to happen with the Temple Mount, you guys, but we need to be watching. Maybe this is the moment when the time when that will be seized again and there'll be a rebuilding of the temple. The word of God also prophesies about the absolute destruction of Damascus. In, uh, in history, Damascus is the oldest city in the world. I don't know if you know that. Uh, for 5,000 years, Damascus has been continually inhabited and what the word of God prophesies will happen to Damascus has never happened. Wiped out. And, you know, often Bible scholars have wondered, could this speak of some sort of nuclear warfare? Well, I wonder that in these days in which we live, if a front opens up on three sides where they're fighting in Gaza and fighting in Lebanon in the north, and they're dealing with Syria and all the 
Hezbollah and all the different groups coming through Syria to attack on the Golan Heights, they may get to the last measure of hope for them as they think and they press the button. What does all this mean, you know, so you just look around? Well, I would say this to any Jewish brother or sister, any Jewish person watching with us this morning. You have a friend in the church of Jesus Christ. I believe in Israel. And I believe in what God is doing in Israel is for, the glory, for his own glory. And because uh, he said that he will honor his word to Abraham and the Lord is going to save Israel. This is important. The Lord is going to save Israel and it's not going to be because of Israel's righteousness. The Lord is going to save Israel because of his own faithfulness. The Lord is going to save Israel because of his own faithfulness to his own covenant. Not because of Israel's righteous action towards Hamas. The Lord is going to save Israel because of his faithfulness. His faithfulness. As he said through Isaiah, I've borne you from the womb. And I carried you. And Israel needs to remember this. We need to pray that they'll remember we need to pray that they'll remember the things of God. The transgressors, as they're called in this passage, need to call this to mind and remember the former things of old. Yahweh is God and there is no other, it says in Isaiah 46 there. That's an exclusive claim. Look again with me at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. The exclusive claim is God is that I am God and there is no other. And Yahweh did this. He sent his son to redeem man from their sin. And his son claimed that he was the exclusive person through whom we access the father. But collectively, Israel has rejected the exclusive point of entry, the son of God, Jesus Christ. But the Bible also prophesies that the time is coming uh, in Zechariah, we're told this, that they will recognize the one with the nail-scarred hands and they will say to him, where did you get these marks? Where did these scars come from? And he will say to the house of his friends, uh, he will say, in the house of my friends, and they will weep as one weeps for their only child. So to my Jewish friends, I support and pray for right now. The Lord has sent his Christ and his name is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. And until you place your faith in the Lord's Christ, you are far from righteousness. But in spite of that, but in spite of that, God's salvation will come and it will not delay. And until you place your faith in Christ, you're far from him. And to the church, to us, I would say this. I believe before God that we have a responsibility to be a friend of the nation of Israel. They're the root, the stump to which we have been grafted in. And the Lord calls us to provoke them to jealousy, 
to pray for their peace and to pray that the scales would fall from their eyes so that they would see clearly who the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's interesting, you know, if you look over the events of the last week, you know, you got this desert rave and 3,000 people and this idol lifted up in the wilderness and all the debauchery and things that were going on and what unfolded there, it's awful. You have Hamas and the murder of babies targeting babies like Herod or Pharaoh. You have the worldwide call to a day of jihad on Friday the 13th. Like the plans of Haman. All I know is this. Something big is happening, you guys. Something big is happening. The world is being reordered. The world is being reordered. And we, the church, need to be ready for the physical return of Christ. We need to be bold in our proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to have our lamps trimmed and burning, our, our lamps filled with oil. Because the Lord says, he, caught, he, he carries the house of Jacob. And so we can be confident that in the midst of what is unfolding, God is working his sovereign plan in the history of the ages here. It's being worked out. You know, the other night I, I was playing hockey, so you know this. <laughs> and uh, boom, elbow to the eye. Got, got me good, tagged me good, just perfect. So when I picked up my glasses and found the pieces and uh, cleaned up the blood, I said, well, I can't wimp out here. I'm a hockey player, man. You go back in. So I went back in. And then about 20 or 30 minutes went by. I noticed all of a sudden flashes in my eye. And I thought, oh, that's weird. That's not good. I, I can see, but there's flashes coming. And... Uh, and so I've had these flashes happening in my eye that kind of move around the perimeter of my eye and they look like lightning. <laughs> Only I can see them. You can't see them right now. Uh, and I went and I had my eye checked out and thankfully, you know, I was worried about my retina. My retina's okay. But the impact was so hard on my eye that the, the, the mucus kind of membrane at the back of my eye separated off of my eye. And they said, you're going to have these flashes. You're going to see these flashes. Only I'm seeing them. But I'll tell you what, the word of God tells us that there's a flash coming that everyone's going to see. Everyone's going to see it. And it's going to happen when Christ comes. This is why we don't believe that Jesus returned in AD 70, as some would teach. Because we believe in a physical return of Jesus, as the angels told the disciples, as you saw him come, as you saw him go, you will see him come. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but let's open our eyes, church. Amen? Amen? Jesus is coming. Let's be awake and be praying into the things that we're seeing and know. Don't be afraid. Be bold for Christ. Now turn with me to the book of Titus and we'll dip our toe in chapter 3. I can't find it, but all the two books are together, so Titus. Chapter 3. So interesting instruction in the midst of this. Let's look at this. Verse 1 says this. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. 
Remind them. This is to the church. This is, we just saw a reminder for Israel. Remember the things of old. And now Titus tells the church, or Titus is told that the church needs a reminder from Paul. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Good instruction for us as we just talked about the things that we were discussing. Actually, Paul is going to give to Titus here seven instructions for the church, seven characteristics that the church is going to have. And he says, you need to remind them of these things. You know, there's some things you just need to be reminded of, don't you? It's like, it's not that you don't know them. It's just you kind of forget, slips your mind, uh, and, and you need reminders. And there are some things, church, that we never, never, never outgrow as we pursue life, the life of faith as we pursue Jesus Christ. There are teachings that we do not outgrow, and we need to be reminded of them. And so seven characteristics for the church. The first thing that Paul says here is this. Be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready to do good. Three things. The idea of becoming subject to rulers or authorities or obedient means to be submissive to, who, to those whom God has placed over you in authority in your life. I mean, that translates into every realm of life. And not just like, don't just think government here. This translates into the workplace, into local, you know, jurisdiction, into provincial jurisdiction, into federal governments. When it comes to the law of the land and those who enforce it, like those whom God has blessed us with, police services and judicial system. It also applies into the area of marriage. It applies into the area of family and parenting. It, 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 it encompasses life of the church. We are to submit ourselves, Paul says, to those whom God has placed over us. And to some people and some who follow Jesus, the idea of obedience to submission to authority always sounds negative, doesn't it? It's like, you know, wives are like, don't tell me to submit to my husband. And us men are like, don't tell me to submit to the government. And don't tell me to submit here or there. It always sounds like a negative thing, submission to authority, like someone's trying to rob you of your God-given rights and freedoms. You know, when Jesus captured your heart and you turned to him in faith, you were born again spiritually and, and you were born in a spiritual capacity. The old you, the old man, the sinful nature was put to death. As Paul told the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we need to be reminded from the word of God that we are dead to this world and we live for the kingdom. We live for the king. We live for Jesus Christ. When you died, when you were identified with Jesus, you gave up your life and you gave up your rights. And part of being dead to yourself means that you're alive to him and you live for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In our human nature, in our sinful capacity, in our flesh, we are born with a desire to resist authority. Amen? That's me. I can just be honest with you. I'm like, you set the rule in front of me, and I don't like it right away, okay? I'm looking for my way to rebel every single time. But submission to authority 
is a law by which even the Godhead functions, the Trinity. I'm looking forward to Wednesday night, by the way. We're going to talk about the Trinity in Genesis. Come join us. You know, the Trinity functions with this law. Is the Holy Spirit inferior to Jesus? I would tell you, no. Is Jesus inferior to the Father? Not a chance. Is the Father greater than the other two members of the Trinity? I would say no. Jesus put himself in the position of submission to the Father. Why did Jesus come to the earth? And why do we call him the second person of the Trinity? He who is the Word made flesh. He who is the creator of the universe. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 tells us that we will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And yet he did this. He said, the Father is greater than I, and I submit to him. He chose to subject himself to the will and authority of the Father. Why didn't the Father come to earth as a child? Why didn't the Holy Spirit give his life on the cross? Because Jesus chose to in submission to his Father. John chapter 10, verse 18 says this. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up. This command I received from the Father. Jesus chose to submit to the Father's will. And the reminder to us is that a life that seeks to live in the pattern of following Jesus and being submitted to his lordship is a life that submits church to authority. You know, over the last few years, I... I I found it difficult to wrestle through arguments of authority and figure out, Lord, how do we live for you in the midst of the culture that we are in? And I found it helpful to remember that all authority belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus and authority in this world, any authority in this world, is at his permission. He says, I allow you to participate in that which is mine. I allow you to exercise authority and you have a responsibility to me. You have a responsibility to me to exercise authority in a way that honors me. And so God gives authority. Jesus gives authority. And then the word of God tells us that he sets a limit to the extent of that authority. Three spheres of authority that I see in Scripture are the family, the church, and the government. Each has a sphere of authority. Each has a limit to its authority. In Titus chapter 2, Paul instructed that wives are to submit to their husbands. We were there last week. But here's what I would say. The husband's authority is limited. His authority is limited by God. And... The submission of the wife is not expected where there is immorality. There are limits to a husband's authority. The church has a realm of authority given to it to direct the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make disciples, to preach good news. God has given leaders in the church, but that leadership comes with a responsibility. Paul says, those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard of judgment. So there is not a freedom to teach beyond what the scripture says. Amen. And leaders in the church have a limit to their authority. If their authority gets abusive, as we see in so many churches and 
denominations and circles, there's a limit to that authority. It does not need to be submitted to. The government, the state, has been given a realm of authority. The state's been given the power of the sword, Romans chapter 13 tells us, to discipline lawbreakers. But it doesn't have authority over the family. It doesn't have authority over the realm of the church. I would say the family, the church, and the state each have a realm of God-given authority to which God has set a limit, and it can become a challenge as a Christian to ethically navigate this world, isn't it? It's like, God, help me to be in submission in a way that honors you and the authorities that you set in place. What if a husband is being physically or emotionally abusive? What if church leadership is being spiritually abusive? What if government moves beyond the realm of its authority and, for instance, claims sovereignty over our health care or over our children? Those are real possibilities, as we know. And they get challenging to navigate. And I wish I had a you know, one-size-fits-all answer for you. Paul doesn't give it to us. He tells Titus, remind people, be submissive. To authority. I'm like, really? Where's the commentary, Paul? No commentary. It's like, yeah, we have to wrestle through it. And we have to know that this is a principle of God's kingdom. It's a principle of his kingdom to be submissive to authority. And I would tell you that in the midst of my own struggles to wrestle through where the lines are, looking unto Jesus is always very helpful, isn't it? Looking unto Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. No one humbled him. He humbled himself. He chose obedience. He chose obedience because in Jesus there is no rebellion, no rebellion towards God. Even though he was fully God, he was fully submitted to the will of his Father. And so church... Here's a simple reminder this morning. When it comes to submission to authority, the call to obedience, obedience to God calls us to a position of humility where we mirror the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind the people to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for good work. Let's be ready to do good things. Let's see around us and be ready to do whatever God would call us to do to advance his kingdom and his purposes. Look again at verse 2. Oh, we haven't looked at verse 2 yet. Look at verse 2. Some more of these seven instructions go on. Speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Speak evil of no one. I think, wow, you know, that's especially hard when you think of the government, isn't it? <laughs> I remember I heard that joke, you know, about three boys. They were bragging about their dads. You know, my dad's tougher than your dad. Well, my dad's tougher than your dad. One of the boys says, oh, yeah, my dad's so tough, you know. When he shoots his bow and arrow, he can run and catch his own arrow. And the boy said, oh, yeah. Well, my dad, he's so fast. He can fire his gun, and he can chase down the bullet and catch it before it hits its target. The third boy said, oh, yeah. My dad's so fast, he works for the government. He gets off work at 4.30 and he's home at 3.45. <laughs> I 
Okay, like I get it why we all get frustrated with government, okay? Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, perfectly courteous. Show true humility, church. Become like Christ. You know, I hope as you hang out in our church and you're part of this body that you'll discover that we just, I'm not interested in, in insisting on the letter of the law, you know. I'm not going to depart from orthodox theology or doctrine. But the letter of the law is not our thing. We're a body of grace because we're saved by grace. We extend that grace to one another. And there are things where there's no room for compromise, but we show grace and we call people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I love this. There are seven characteristics in these first two verses. Barely scratching them. Submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy. Those are great standards. They set the bar really high, don't they? And although they set the target for us, the reality is, is that meeting those demands is very tough right there. I'm like, I'm wrecked right there. You give me that list, I'm done. It's impossible. And I actually think if Paul left the discussion right there, you know, we'd be left with a deep sense of just our failure and our shortcoming, but because these instructions are unattainable, but the next verse puts things into perspective for me. The bar is really high. You and I are not what we're called to be. But God in his grace, well, thankfully, in his grace, we're not what we once were, are we? And that's what Paul begins to talk about. Remember what you were before Jesus? Look at verse 3 as he tells us to have these characteristics about us of submissiveness and obedience and not speaking evil of others and all these things. He said this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And we get seven characteristics of those who follow Christ and we're given six characteristics of what we were before Jesus. Before Christ got a hold of our lives, we were foolish we were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy. And we, we were hated by others and we were hating one another. You know, I, I, I think, wow, you know, thankfully in the church, we don't have to air out all our dirty laundry and talk about what we were before Jesus intercepted our lives. I'm so glad that I'm not the person I once was, aren't you? Aren't you glad that Jesus and his grace has transformed you and that his word promises that he's not finished with you? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed. That's a process. We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. The transformation that is happening in you is the work of God. It is a work of the Spirit. You are being changed from glory to glory into His likeness. But it's much 
less painful we get on board with them. <laughs> Amen? But remember what you were before Jesus? And then Paul says this, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Next week, we'll dive deeper into these verses. But what I want to show you in this or remind you of is just as the Lord holds Israel in the palm of his hand and he knows them before they were born in the womb. So the Lord knows you. And in his sovereign will, he's placed his hand upon you. And it's not because of works done in your flesh or in your righteousness that he has saved you. It is his goodness. It is his kindness. It is his mercy that he has washed you and renewed you and regenerated you. And he took you from being Jacob and he made you an Israel. born again. Born of his spirit. Paul says this. He has poured out on you richly. His spirit, church. He has poured out on you richly through Jesus Christ, who is your Savior. Church, we have a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus, by His work on the cross, has justified us in His grace. By His unmerited favor that He has bestowed upon us, that we would become heirs of hope. We have a hope. We have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's this. The hope of eternal life. Aren't you so grateful for the forgiveness of your sins? For the work of the cross of Jesus Christ? That we serve a God who is unfolding plans in the world that we don't comprehend every little detail. But it will be cut done because of his faithfulness. He'll save Israel in his faithfulness. And he will save you in his faithfulness, not your works. And so let's rest in him this morning, justified by his grace. Heirs of hope. Those who have inherited eternal life. Amen. We'll tackle the rest of chapter three and some of it next week. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. What song are we doing? Okay. Yeah, not I. Awesome. Great on. Good. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? And as you bow your heads, as your eyes are closed, let me ask you this question. Search your own heart right now. Is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior? The Bible tells us that the Lord has placed in those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, his spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance to come. And I can tell you right now that as a child of God, as I ask you, have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? There will be an inner witness of the spirit if you have. 
You'll be an inner witness of the Spirit. And this morning, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ, I just want to invite you to do that. The Word of God says very simply, it functions like this. You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You repent of sin and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The action of faith is this. I turn from sin and I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging that which Jesus did on the cross and that which he accomplished by his bodily resurrection from the grave. And the word of God instructs this, that if you'll turn from sin and turn in faith to Jesus, you will be saved. You'll be born of the Spirit. And the Spirit will come and infill you and you'll have an inner witness God will give you peace. He'll give you joy. He'll give you hope. And He'll lift from you worry and anxiety and fear. And He'll reveal Himself to you. And so this morning, I just want to invite you. If your heads are bowed, eyes closed. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your heart and life, would you take that step with me this morning just by faith? Just say this, Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Jesus, this morning I turn from sin and I turn to you. As I ask you to forgive me of my sin, I confess that you are Lord. Come and be the Lord of my life. Come and save me. Come and fill me with your spirit. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.